This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, speaking with Drea Weber, director, producer, performer, and wildly innovative aerial choreographer for artists like Pink and Cher. She shares with us what it's like to be on tour with them on rock concerts. And also, she shares a story of her first fall from a trapeze and the importance of failure in play for all ages. So stay tuned for the Siren of the Silks, Drea Weber. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. I'm curious right away, what order do you put your hyphens in? I guess it's whatever I'm doing in the moment, you know. I was speaking to my niece who is uh she would have been in her senior year uh at college and she's taking a gap year so that ideally next year she can be in her year actually at the university and we were talking about um that how the idea that there's any job security in any profession has kind of been kicked to the wind right in everything i mean is the the jobs that we've traditionally thought were the most secure, like my dad being at one company as an engineer for his entire career. That's kind of not true anymore. So we're talking about, I was talking to her about the importance of making sure that what you choose to do is something that you really love and are interested in. And then how do you make your life around that so that you can envision an entire life? And uh, so I diversified I loved diversity anyway when I was young, and I grew up with this kind of weird parallel, wanting to be an actor, wanting to be an athlete track that started when I was very young. And I started working professionally as an actor when I was 10. So I would say that to as an answer partially to your question of that all along, I've pushed back against people who are like, well, you got to pick one thing, got to pick one thing. And I'm like, but I'm interested in more than one thing. And that seems boring. And so I've made lots of baskets and I love learning. I love curiosity. And I think that those things will keep me interested in living the whole way. Uh, well, that's what's the most interesting to me about creativity. You can't age out of it. It took me a while to figure out that creativity was at the core of all of these things for me. I mean, I started out with a, as a kid magician and I did some juggling and I, you know, and, and I kept thinking that's not really the satisfying. So then I thought, oh, maybe, yeah. maybe I'm a producer first. Then I realized that all of it was just ways of being creative. And I feel yes. like singer songwriters, many people, as they get older, it just gets to be a nicer way to express yourself. It doesn't get taken away from you because it comes from your heart and some passion and so forth. And I feel like when I watch your movies and other things, you've been able to be fair to transfer 
and take it with you at whatever stage you're at. I don't know if that makes sense, but it feels like you're in a really great place, uh, moving, combining being athlete and an actress, combining being a producer and an athlete and an athlete. Like, I'm a little confused with when you take off which hat. Tell me that. Tell me when you, when do you, when you end up having to be in the movie, when do you stop thinking about the problem? Oh, that's a, okay. So I can talk about The Aerialist, which is the most recent movie that I produced and that I star in. And it's sort of a follow-up to movie that was released in 2006 called The Gymnast. And in that I play the same character 15 years later. So the making of this movie came about and was on a super fast track, not because there was money, but because I had helped out some people who had a business where they they had a sound stage, a small sound stage in downtown Los Angeles. And part of my agreement with them was that I would get 10 days, 10 shooting days for free. Then I discovered that not only were they going to go out of business and my kind of investment in them was going to be completely lost, but that I had this tiny window with which to get my 10 days. So the We'd been kicking around an idea for a follow-up to the gymnast for years because it ends with this open question. The character makes this huge life choice. She's in a car. She's driving to Las Vegas. And I, I won't give it away, but like one of my favorite scenes in the movie runs during the end credits where, and that's based on a true story of this crazy Russian gymnast who I worked with named Olga Chudena. Oh my God, I, I have to. I'm going to go to a sidebar because Please, it's just I, such a- I saw both of these movies, but I saw them in the wrong okay. order because I came to you on the air list. So I love that you're telling this. Okay. And I, by the way, without ruining anything, love that ending sequence of The Gymnast. I was so oh, glad. You. I was like, wow, this movie's not really over until, you know, they pull the plug on the whole thing. Like you got to watch it all the way through. Yeah. So yeah, take take us yeah. on the sidebar. I'm I'm in the sidecar. You drive. Okay. So one of my one of my career paths is is uh, I was a competitive gymnast. I was a I had a really kind of crazy diverse athletic career as a kid, and um, and when I went to college, I went back to gymnastics after competing when I was a younger teen, and I was pretty good. So I I was qualified for nationals. I was at a Division two school. I was uh, all American, and um, uh, I coach. I made a lot of connections with. The, the training camps in the area. So there's a camp called the International Gymnastic Training Center in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. That's one of the premier, probably the premier one, now that Caroli's thing has been kind of disappeared in Texas. So I met lots of world-class international champion gymnasts, uh, Svetlana Bovinskaya. These are all like People who were gymnasts back in the 80s, 90s will recognize these names. But there was a woman named Olga Trudena. And she was on the Russian national team for, I don't know, a handful of years and has moves still that she made named after her. And for gymnasts or people who are aware of the sport, she invented a move that is still called the Chudena, where she did a round off onto the board, a full twisting backflip onto the balance. Insane, right. Insane. Insane. She was insane. And you... You, crazy, and you're just crazy, crazy enough to learn that move. Is that right? Oh, no, God, no, 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 <laughs> okay, never, never. Okay. But I love this woman and uh, I loved her because, and we performed together as aerialists and, 
you know, she just, she, she's classic Russian to me of a certain generation where God damn, they had these terribly difficult lives and getting out of Russia as an athlete is such a complexity and so much a story. We became friends because she sensed that I wasn't competitive with her. I just thought she was amazing. And, but she drove like an absolute, she was a chain smoker. So she'd smoke and her hands would come off the wheel and she tailgated and she'd speed. And the one time I drove with her, I was, you know, like grateful I survived. So she told me this story. She was driving and she was like, you know, I don't know what's wrong with these people. I got pulled over and, um, you know, he makes me walk the line and she would wear these tiny little, tiny dresses, just terrible. But to her, my, it's like a right. cultural difference to her. It's like freedom and I'm a woman. I get to be sexy. Um, highest heels, tiniest little dress. So the cop pulls her over because he's certain she's drunk. She's not. She's just driving the way she drives. And he tells her to walk the line. And in the tiny little dress and the high heels, she does her world championship balance. And lands back on the line, right? And everything perfect. And then he let her walk away without giving her a ticket. That, that's so great. So great. And then you were able to dramatize that in your movie, at, you know. Yes. So, so I called her a couple of years later. It was originally going to be a short film. We were like, oh, God, this is just too good. And I asked her if we could, if I could use the story she told me. She was like, yes. Oh, my God. So good. Anyway, well, where were thing. we? Oh, how does one produce and, and act in a Well, I, a I just, to, to set you up just a little bit. I, you know, very early on did a play where I was producing it in a small theater in Santa Monica or, or on Santa Monica Boulevard. And the, the theater was arguing about who pays for the toilet paper uh, when the audience comes and uses. And they're like, you rented the space. You have to do like, and they did that one minute before I walked on stage. Right. So oh, I'm taking that with me. Like I'm entering that world and I'm the producer in me is furious and the actor has to come on and be sweet. <laughs> That's very, very small yeah. potatoes from what you do because you've got human lives hanging on the silks. You've got, you've got all this stuff, the rigging, everything has to be on your mind. And now it's time to perform. Yeah, it's, it's really intense. I, I felt like I had the benefit of having the character Jane Hawkins sit in me for 15 years and the responsibilities that, that I take very seriously are ones that she did too. So th that part was all right. The ability to feel unencumbered that a camera's recording you is one that a relationship that I have been really interested in and interested in my own vanity and my own burdens of vanity and my own burdens for aging and the, the sort of cultural burdens that women take on that I have been really looking at over the past, like when I turned 50, I had a really dear friend who was one year older than me who said, she said, oh yeah, I was turning 50 and it's breaking out. And somebody who, a friend of hers who was a year older than her goes, you don't know. She was like, you, it's so good. You don't know. And she told that to me. And then, and I thought, wow, well, what is that? I, I'm lucky that I don't, I don't quite have the number burden because um, for another reason, my, my family never really talked about numbers, but for sure, my mom was burdened with the, the idea that age is a diminishment for a woman and that women use that as a weapon. 
against women. Oh, well, how old mm-hmm. are you? Oh, oh, you don't. Oh, oh, you're that old. Oh my God. It's like, oh, you look so good, but somehow that's a slap. It's a very strange thing, but, but I started to realize that I was buying into it and I decided to go the other direction. I decided to go toward it. And instead of being angry, if women ask me or people ask me how old I was, I just tell them and then investigate a little further, you know, what they were interested in. Uh, Well, I think that's extraordinary for many reasons, because what I see in the character when I watch the movie is I see a lot of uh, grace and dignity in a way with vulnerability, right? You're, you play her and it's a very interesting combination because you have such strength as an athlete. Right. You, you you physically see that you're muscular and that you can do all of this stuff. But mm-hmm. the vulnerability of the part of the aging and the, uh, dealing with the marriage and dealing with the possibility of being pregnant or various things of that nature. It's really, really a, a, a beautiful mix of things that really carries through the movie in, in with you at the lead. Well, it's so like I don't have a judge about actors and actresses in a way because I I I did some things I did a lot of acting I always thought I was taking a job away from an actor even when I was in it I would be in the costume and doing the scene on Friday night lights and I'd go do they know I'm not acting like they know I'm just a dude in a suit uh saying the lines like I I have great respect for for actors ability to mm. to be in the moment but yeah but a lot of people, I watch them and I see there's, they take all that ego and that vanity and that performance and the idea of fame and all of that kind of stuff. They carry it with them through every scene. They, they, they're they acting instead of reacting or all of the things in, in acting classes and stuff. It's sort of, there's still an agenda. But when people start to become the character, it's it's a whole nother thing. And I guess I I saw in you... The life of Jane was there on display for me. I wasn't watching Drea, right? I was watching that story unfold for your character. Well, and the reason I brought up that stuff about aging and vanity is because you know how a film set works. And and there's an awful lot of burden and concern. And again, you know, it's like being a woman. There's this extra, this thing about, you know, don't age, don't, don't wrinkle, don't whatever, where I, I, I wanted to face it. And try to get a perspective on or see my of, of I, I really wanted to make the goal truly how present can I be? <laughs> and if I see playback or if I see in a film, it's like, oh, wow, that's what I look like. Well, that's what I look yeah. like. But that's what a human being looks like. And I in the aerialist, I took it one step further because we were on such a we shot in 14 days, which is insane for a feature. Film. It's nuts. It's crazy. And um, I knew that if I spent a half hour in the chair, uh, hair and makeup, that that was a half hour we didn't get. So I never let the makeup or hair person touch me. And she was so irritated at me. And I bless her heart because she was just trying to do her job. But I was like, I can't, if we can shoot something, we might be able to shoot two setups in the hour that I might be in that chair. And then... And I, why would I make that choice as the producer? So then it becomes this amazing exercise that like, okay, I'm going to be in, um, filterless as, uh, as the producer so that I can be the actor. I, I think you're, you're giving a wildly great piece of advice to people, right? 
to take that filter, to take that judgment, to take it all away. I, I, I was producing a sitcom called American Pie with NBC many years ago, and it was based on a play that I wrote. And I wrote with the writers and did all of the stuff, got it all ready. And all along, the network was like, why is this guy, uh, why are we using this guy as an actor, right? But as the producer, I read with every actor. And they afterwards, they go, wow, everybody responds so well in scenes with you. And I go, well, I don't, I don't know. And I go, I wrote all these words, so it, it's authentic to me. And then afterwards, I didn't realize, because again, I didn't feel I was an actor. I didn't realize I had just done 10 network tests in a row. Like every one of them, they could have said, oh, he's a moron. Get rid of him. But I just got better to them. And, and so I, when I was in scenes as in a sitcom, I was playing Pat. You know, yeah. and, and there's something about when you do find your voice where, you know, that's absolutely appropriate. But isn't that interesting? Don't you think, I mean, having observed from both sides of the table, you know, having been inside it where you mentioned this feeling like, well, this can't be it. This can't be like, I can't be being the actor right now because that's a, but it, you actually were. And, and it, it's probably more the idea of the, the trappings of it that were you know, on your mind or something where in the purest sense, you were just, you were being exactly a human being in, in a situation without the burden of like, oh, but my agent says I need to be doing this, or I need to look like this, or I have to, I'm having a really interesting argument slash discussion with people who are trying to help me with social media right now about don't put stuff out there if you don't have one of those kind of glamour little donut lights. And I'm like, fuck that shit, man. I get it. You know, and they're trying to help me. They're like, you just don't understand. This is the information and people want this. And I'm like, yeah, but the whole point of my existence is like, let's say that's not true. Why can't we make that experiment? Well, there you go. But, but I wanna, because I, I, I think I sort of sidebarred us on something else when you were talking about women aging and so forth. Because of my age, I'm dating women in their 50s. I've had some conversations where, and it's bittersweet. I, I'm a good listener. And when somebody tells me when they got to a certain age, they became invisible, it just breaks my heart, right? Oh. And they begin to buy into it. They believe it. And so they dress invisible and they act invisible. And at the grocery store, they say, people don't notice me. And I'm, I'm at a table and I go, I can see you. I want you to hear what I'm saying. I can see you. You're beautiful. You can just be yourself, right? And it, it comes down to a, your passion and your purpose. And like some of the sexiest people in the world are not like traditionally sexy. You just, that's their right. Confidence, their ability to communicate, their intelligence. That's the stuff that has longevity, right? You're right. And that's why, you know, that's, you know, in this conversation that I was referring to with my niece, I was like, I think curiosity is so attractive. When someone is curious, then it's like appreciation and it, and it's um, us expanding outside our own experience. That experiment, that um, invisibility with aging thing was something that was super interesting to me. And part of my trying to shed myself of the burden of this uh, fear of aging was when I was performing up at uh, this Cirque Cabaret place in Seattle called Teatro Zanzani a few years ago. I was going to be part of a cast with an extraordinary Broadway legend, Lilian Montevecchi. And Frank Ferrante was the Frank Ferrante is the lead clown playing his crazy Caesar character. 
And he and I had already known each other and worked together on a few shows, but we were going to do a show with William Montevecchi, who at the time was 74 or something, but everyone said she was five years old. We don't know. We don't know. This woman won Tony Awards for, uh, she was in Folie Bergere. She was in movies with Elvis and Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and Marlon Brando. This woman is life. Sang, danced, freaking leg to here. And so I thought, okay, so since I got to create the character that I was going to play, I was like, okay, what do I do in this situation? And I, I was like, oh, I want to, I'm actually going to do the experiment of go toward the fear. I want to play a crumb. I want to play an, the oldest one. I want to play her because then I had an idea of like, oh, and then if there can be some pinch toward a memory of youth and then the aerial number can be the shedding of the burden of the age. Right. And, and be a sequence, right? A fantasy sequence from the past. Yes. Wow, beautiful. Yes. So for the first hour and a half, because these shows lasted two and a half hours, of first hour and a half of the show, I was this crone. And 50% of Teatro's and Zani shows are interaction with the audience, what they call animation in character, which I just freaking love. So I would like this, this character, she's, she's German because I have that. Uh, ancestry. Actually, I have her cane right here. Oh, 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 wow. With a handle, a rabbit head handle. How yeah, awesome. So she, she woke like this and I didn't wear makeup, but I would very much like signaling posturally. Ancient, obscured face in shadow and a little voice like this. And going around and talking to people. Nobody would ever look at me. And I was like, oh, shit. It was so amazing because the, the physical signals of like, I'm extremely old. Right. And weakness. There was weakness in the way you're hunched over. Weakness, yeah. uh, frailty, like, oh, shit, is she going to fall over? Like, what's going to happen? But, oh, man, was that comic. Because the comic opportunity and the opportunity to precious moments of interaction with people that you knew, that they know and you know only happened with them, which makes it just... Because I could, I could, I could sneak up and listen to conversation. I could literally be at someone's shoulder just listening for a couple minutes, and then when they'd realize I was there, they'd be like, <laughs> you know, they freak out, and I just, and I could joke about sexuality and and make people really laugh with their discomfort about thinking about old people and sexuality, um, old women and sexuality. What happens down there? Right. You know, I mean, just unbelievable. Um, but then later you make your transformation and you do this beautiful aerial work. And those people yes. now go, wait a minute, right? Because you shed the costume in front of them? Yes, I did. It happened in front of the, in a moment. It was actually with, so Frank Bronte, uh, who created this comic character, was sort of the lead clown in the, the show. And his character, we came up with the idea that he would be in love with me regardless of the age. And the producers were like, you can't do that. She's an old lady. And I'm like, no, no, you can do that. So there's a moment where there's like this kind of romantic scene and he tries to get her drunk. <laughs> you know, he feeds her martinis and there's a song called Martini Time. And then at the end, he kisses me romantically and then he leaves. Yes, but that wakes and you up. Kiss triggers this memory of feeling romance and vitality and then in the air all of these like signals of oldness i think i wore like rice boobies that hung down to my <laughs> waist you know, and 
and and I think I might have even had a lump in the back of my jacket and just spectacles and sleeping caps and and it all falls off in this memory of well those, and maybe uh, most people don't know about teatros uh what it is it's essentially a live show under a tent with four mm-hmm. course meal like a lavish meal right and a series yes. of interstitial introductions of characters and small performances and yes. right but it's yeah. but it's sort of a like a happening that is otherworldly in a way there uh there was a family in belgium that made these spiegel tents starting in i think around the beginning of the turn of the last century and family's name is Klesens, and there's great stories about them, but there's these sort of jewels of over a hundred year old tents that were all made of wood and mirror. There's no nails or screws in the construction. They were built to be mobile dance halls in Europe. So they would get put up, people would go, there'd be live music and dancing, and then they'd take them down and move them to the next town that didn't have a dance hall. So that's their tradition, which is just, you know, romantically, insanely rich. When you walk into them now, the feeling of their age, this old wood and mirror and booths that's booths around the outer edge. There's a nine foot diameter center ring, which is the main performance stage. So right. So it's in the round with these three bombs that radiate toward it. And then there's a bandstand. Yeah. And, and in this form was, as I said, with Sinzani, it's international circus artists, musicians comics, live bands, singers, um, people like Lilian Montevecchi. Uh, oh, gosh. Well, well even people? you mentioned Frank Ferrante, who who made a career out of being sort of, he played Groucho Marx in a one-person show and still does. Um, mm-hmm. And he's such an extraordinary character actor. And then he developed this character, Caesar, that you were inter- uh, interchanging with, who's a bigger than life. You know, I don't even know how you describe him. He's such a... He's such a huge character, right? Yeah. Uh, and in yeah. fact, uh, just to make a twist, are, you're involved with working with him on uh, a movie of that uh, character or no? Right now, um, three years ago. So I've been directing his when we, we've been working together for about 10 years. And a few years in, he did his production. I saw his one man Groucho show. And then I saw it again and I started to have ideas about it structurally. And so we started I started working, I started directing it. And so we've had the opportunity to do several sit downs where once at, at Milwaukee rep, we did nine weeks. Um, and we did a production three years ago in Cincinnati at the Playhouse in the Park, where for the first time we had a dedicated design team. We had a proper set designer, lighting designer, pro- the entire thing. And so at that time, we shot it, which is a miracle that the theater allowed us yeah. to. But there were tons of constraints, right? So we couldn't put up, we couldn't put in cameras anywhere except in the aisles. We couldn't be in the theater when people were coming in or going out, which means the tripods had to be brought in and set up while the show was starting, which was crazy if we're trying to capture the beginning of the show. Made editing challenging. Yes. So the pandemic, one of the strange rewards of the pandemic was. There were so many problems with the shooting of this piece and so many complexities. I had no idea to, how to approach the editing or even how to hand it off to someone because it was four different shows, a live accompanist. So the sound is never 
uh, synchronous between the underscore for one story might sit in a completely different place and in a different feel on a different show. So, and one of our shows, one of the camera operators, I don't know, was passing kidney stone or something because the record button didn't get pushed a lot. (laughs) So, so many nightmares. But anyway, the pandemic was like, well, now there's a real opportunity. So I, we have fit. Yeah, we're really, we're done. Basically we're doing color timing and sound mixing. And it's a beautiful, beautiful representation of Frank's show. Right. Well, he pours his heart into it. He's so knowledgeable and so respectful of all of Groucho's work. You know, he's a part of that tribute and sort of living legacy of that. I'm here. I need to go back to aerial work for a second. Okay. Okay. Because first of all, everybody must ask this question about the first fall. The first time, I don't mean fall to the ground. I mean, the leap of faith when you're learning some of that work and you're hanging from the silks and you're going to unravel twice and you're going to stop on a knot one foot off the ground. Like, tell me about the adrenaline of that moment or what you can recall about that. I had a good doozy of a fall out of a flying trapeze. I've never had a terrible, terrible fall out of an individual aerial apparatus, like the silks or the lira or a static trapeze or or the kind of things that we do in um, the aerialist. This huge area over big parking lots, big open park, 25,000 people could be there at any given moment. Each night there was a concert. It was a big construction of a sort of shell amphitheater type stage, and it had a Hoberman screen. Hoberman is the designer who created that. If you go to museums and the gift stores, there's those those kind of ball globe things that expand and contract. And it's sort of a geometrical science miracle of like perfect construction of geometry that can expand and still have structure. And so it was a Hoberman screen that came down in this thing. So it was all just like amazing and fancy and wonderful. And I performed with a group called Anti-Gravity, which was a circus dance gymnastic troupe that I had been a founding member of. And we performed this number that was like dance and aerials. And I was one of four aerialists who had to climb up the structure of the Hoberman, the shell that, that held the Hoberman screen. And at a certain moment, in the music, we would drop our silks. Just It would just be sitting there. We just drop them. There's a way to kind of have your hands on the silk and have it a little bit around your body so you're sort of in it, sort of not. There's You're certainly not wearing a safety. There's nothing like that. And then we'd pop out of our little holes and do our aerial thing, come down and then go away. But there was a moment, the first oh, it was one of the daytime rehearsals and it was sub- sub freezing. It might've even been below zero. Very cold. And I reached up and grabbed and one of my hands slipped and I kind of pulled out and I'm sure I hurt my shoulder. And I caught myself on one arm and I looked down at the stage. I was probably, probably 25 feet up and my heart was pounding. I could barely see. And I knew I was like, I looked down at the stage and I was like, wow, that's like, that's where you're, you, that's where you're dead. The, like that parallel vision of like, I'm up here, but I can see my own body down there. And this is where you die. This is where, when you're an aerialist and you agree to that, this is the risk. 
you die. So freaking scary. But but you can't do, you can't be an aerial artist and you certainly can't choreograph people and put them in the air like I do without being aware of that all the time, that risk that that is, oh my God, and it's a millisecond. Mm. And the risk of of the catastrophic risk of someone falling, even from this high, even from four or five feet above the ground, people yeah. can have their lives permanently altered. So it's it's an incredibly rewarding and liberating and joyous experience. I'm still intoxicated by it, and I've been doing it for over 30 years. I love, love, love it. And that ties back to the first moment that I experienced it, that you asked about. Something so powerful and pure and uh, strong and free about the experience of being off the ground and being able to fly. Oh, my God. It's never let me go. It, 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 and I, I, I hope that I can keep doing it until I'm super, super, super old. I have a goal to be very, very, very old and be in the air. <laughs> Well, like listen, I, I know that will happen, <laughs> but, but, and I, I can hear it. I can hear your love of it. So my question is, then you talked about choreographing other folks, and I know you did that amazing performance with Pink uh, for the Grammys in 20, uh, 2010. Um, yeah. When somebody, when you begin to then try to teach a person, how do you get that going? Like, like. You know, she was singing and spinning and half naked and in water. And like, how do you begin to add those elements to say, yeah, but I know you got this down, but now let's add water. Okay. Let's, yeah, let's like, how do you it. do that? How do you, I well, mean, I know they her. trust you. I know they trust you. Yeah. I can tell yeah. that you are like the queen of the trust fall. You'll be there for anybody, but I just don't, how do you get that? I mean, pink's unbelievable in that. And I, I saw something she did in 2014. I'm sure you were been yeah. involved all through, correct? Yeah. I, yeah. I, she had, uh, I was the first person to work with her. She'd never been in the air when we started working in 2004. So by the time, and she's very good athlete and she's very smart and a very quick learner. So figuring it out with her was really fun because I work with a lot of high level dancers, but actually having the artist in the air is more unusual. Not many people will put themselves in that position. They're not even interested in it. She was very interested. She saw me performing in Cher's first farewell to her <laughs> where I choreographed the aerials and I did aerials and, and uh, she was like, well, why don't I, you know, I want to do that part. Like that's the fun part. And she completely fell in love with it. But the way it worked was we, in her first tour, she did two aerial elements in two different songs. I, I would say you'd call it more like a gag. You know, it's like you do most of the song on the ground, you do a thing, do another part on the ground, do another thing, and it's more like that. And then she does that for 100 performances, you know, goes out on the road and does it. And so then under her belt, she gets this like real world experience, which is it's also very scary because. That's the other part about the artist being at risk. Nobody likes that. No, they're the engine of the whole tour and the car and that works, right? That's a hundred people's jobs. Right. Forget the rest of it, you know, so nobody wants to see them hurt. But she was ferociously uh, adamant that she was going to do it. She really loved it. She loves it. So 
so then the next tour we did a, we did two numbers where one where one entire number in the air and then another thing that was a little more bits and pieces and then in the third tour that we did there were four numbers that she did sober that one that she does yeah. on the swinging cradle yeah uh and glitter and a couple of other things so by the time it got to the grammys which you know, those shows, they give you, you know, you must know this. They, you get so little tech time. You get, get like an hour camera rehearsal tech in a, in a arena you've never played before. And you're dealing with this, rigging, right? This whole thing yeah. is about safety and rigging. Like you got to yeah. know everything is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And in my number, that number, nobody's in a safety. The three women above her aren't in safety. She's not in a wow. safety. There's the, wow. the safety is the aerial apparatus. It's this, it's, I've actually had to make this, um, I'd say argument slash persuasion to insurance companies because at a certain point with an aerial apparatus, your safety becomes more dangerous than the apparatus. Right. You, if it gets caught get, up in the silk or the something, absolutely. It can cause a lot of exactly. immediate problems. Exactly. So, you know, but with her, as things got more difficult, I had to be more creative with training her. I was, there's an exercise for, for a core exercise where you stand on someone's stomach when they lay on the ground, you have to stand on their stomach. And I thought, well, that'd be great for her. And then to make her sing. So I stood on her stomach. It was like, engage your core. Now I'm going to bounce up and down and now sing. And that was hilarious. Oh my God. I can't. Was it uh, a vibrato or whatever? Was she able to keep her breath control? Like, so in spite of what's happening in your body, in spite of the muscular effort, can you still sing and sustain this note? Or can you hit a high note or sing a melodic phrase? And we did things uh, where she was hanging upside down. And I just, you know, I just sort of added complexity to be like, okay, now swing back and forth and catch my hands. Now swing the chorus. Now stop. Or, or, uh, you know, and I would also, I can sing. So I would do stuff beforehand and experiment. I certainly learned things that you can't do and say, like you can't fill your diaphragm. There's certain positions where there's too much pressure on the, the rib cage, but, um, but you so were able to fun. time out the performance in terms of where a, a natural breath would be with an act action. Exactly. So a, a good illustration, and it's so deceptively simple in glitter when she goes from goes from upright to upside down and hooks her leg within mm -hmm. the beat, within the breath. But you still have to breathe. It's, it's, um, she made it look so easy. It was, <laughs> it was a incredible moment. I put her in the water and then spun her. So I was out on the satellite stage. And then when she came up and was spinning, well, the whole thing was amazing because the idea of it took a year and a half to actually get approved. Um, and I, I just, I, by the way, I can't even believe it was approved. I, I know, I know. <laughs> well, that took a team, you know, because I, I had talked to people on her team about it, her manager and production manager, and, they, and there was a lot of no. How, no, you can't put water over electronics. You know, no, no, no. And then somebody was like, yeah, but it could be a satellite stage. And it was like, yes. So, so people started to, I just kept like pushing at it. And, you know, I, it wasn't an idea that I'd actually, I had to draw her pictures of it when, because it's not like I can go, oh yeah, they did this in Cirque du Soleil. Cause I really was interested in doing, I don't like doing things I've seen before. 
Well, that was so, it was so beautiful. The moment that she came into the water and went up, and of course there's a stripping artist, but when she spun and it was flying off onto people, it was like, there was like, there was chills and and the looks on the faces of the audience, they they knew they were at, this was a moment. Yeah. This was a, a moment that they were never going to see again, right? Pat, there was this sound. There was this as she as she tracked back. So the water, she's spinning and the water's catching the light and like the beautiful, simple theatricality of just drops of water and light. Oh my God. Just just that's it's amazing. But as she tracked back, the audience like spontaneously rose like a wave as she passed. But the sound was like this. Oh, it, but but thousands of people, it, and I knew no one would be able to hear that, but I remember that moment hearing the sound, the spontaneous collective sound of the audience just going, oh, this is this is um, like once in a lifetime kind of moment. Right, and that in adults. Now, you work in so many places where you do create things for people that adults are cynical and they're They've seen everything and they, you know, so when a moment of wonder or folly or whimsy catches not just one person, but a collective moment where everyone realizes it's, there's a, there's sort of a moment in humanity where you have this epiphany of like, there's a huge aha, I'm alive again, right? That moment. Yeah, that's so true. And I think, of course, it happened there. But also, I mean, Pink must have been so exhilarated coming off of that performance. Yeah, we 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 kind of met, you know, under the stage right after in the little thing, and it was because so many things could have gone wrong. <laughs> we were just giddy. It went so beautifully, and she did it so beautifully. I had no idea at that time that they had shot it so beautifully. It's I just knew it went well. Because, you know, you don't know. It's, there's no time. You don't get to plan it. They shot it so beautifully. We were giddy because we knew. I mean, the poor women, the three women who were in the upper kind of thing above her, they were like 20 feet higher than, than they had ever been. And we just, they were like, oh, it's a little higher, isn't it? I was like, just like stay with each other, talk to each other if you need to. Just stay in your bubble. You guys are great. You know what you're doing. That, that's such an important part of the risk to reward, right? That most people are afraid of a tightrope walker or something else, but a tightrope walker who knows what they're doing, they know what their balance is. They know where their focus is two feet off the ground, 2000 feet off the ground, right? There's a Zen place. Yeah. And most people, they don't even know how they would do it between two trees, but that's, that's really, I saw Philippe Petit, uh, if you know who he is. Sure. Um, you know, I saw him in Denver doing a street show and he set up a thing and walked between lampposts before he had ever done the world walk between the towers. You know, it was you in saw Denver. Him before that? Yeah, it was insane though. I was like, wow. it was a picnic, like a jazz in the park idea with this guy. Clearly, this guy was equally insane and fearless and all of those things that come with the mm-hmm. confidence of knowing your ability. And being able to stay focused in that moment. And I, I would imagine that that's a great deal of when you have an aerial show that you're trying to hit every time. The conditions are different. The venue is different. All of those things. But yeah. it comes down to your training and your practice and your repetition and your faith in your partners. 
Uh, you're a collaborator in all of those moments. Yeah. The, the sharing that bubble with someone is magnificent. But you, when you talk about the Zen place, that that's, I think, one things about being a performer where it's always aspirational and sometimes when you feel like you've touched it, you know, what is that? What is that? What is the Zen moment? I mean, I always think that the most successful moments are truly, truly the feeling where you feel like you are the audience. They are you. They're breathing with you or me. Well, related to the experience of flying, because it gives me such joy that I always hope that that I might be able to communicate that joy or, or someone watching might go, that must be amazing. Or, oh, I would love to do that. Or I'd love to feel that. That's what, that's when I feel like I'm most successful. If I'm completely in it and lost to it, but super aware that it's not really me. I'm like representing the experience for people. Wow. That's a big, 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 happy goal for me all the time. And it's not, I can't always achieve it, you know, because there are technical things or there's just life stuff. But boy, that is, that's a, that's a big intoxication. I'm glad to hear that you had the chance to direct uh, or assemble the previously directed theatrical thing during the pandemic, because for a person, and I imagine, I I don't know your uh, rehearsal life or your discipline, which I know from being early athlete, I read that you were a hurdler. I was. Like when. Was that the first before? Well, I was a gymnast first when I was from like, oh my God, my, my, there was a gym teacher at my Catholic elementary school. Uh, her name was Corky and she chain smoked and she was just a badass. And she set up this tumbling club and she was like, I was 10, but it would might've been the Olympic team because she, I remember going into her office and she was like, why should I let you be on this? Why should you get to, why should you get to do this? And I'm like, I'm, I'm really serious about it. I'm, I know it's amazing. And she was very like, mm, mm. all of a sudden it was something I was like, wow, this is serious and I have to earn this. And this woman's only going to let me do this. If I'm like, show up as focused at whatever, it was all a mystery. Then I was on a gymnastic team for a couple of years. My brother <laughs> I had to learn how to do roundup two back handsprings to get on this gymnastic team. And my brother helped me learn in the yard with lots of dropping on my head and lots and lots of that. That was good. And well, then, but it sounds to me like that might have been the birthplace of your discipline, right? Like that yeah. you started to have a goal and you were like, I want that. I have to earn that. Or, you know, even attend to be an advocate for yourself to be on a tumbling team seems, you know, it seems what a like great a, thing. And yeah. currently, and there's a lot of talk about it, like over rewarding and rewarding everybody for everything that I, I personally don't think is a, the greatest idea, because I do think that we're, we're all not naturally good at everything, that the ability to learn how to struggle in the face of challenge is so important for figuring out how to live. And if we take that away from the development process for young people, I don't know that we're helping them. I mean, I guess we'll see. It's an experiment. but challenge is is part of living right pain suffering challenge uh loss right. we- fall, the falls the failure are all stepping stones right i saw a animated cartoon or something of a person with a pile of bricks that all said fail on them and they were all over the person and then the next panel was a different person and the fail 
bricks were all set of stepping stones going up, oh. right? Which is that, you know, that in gymnastics or in any discipline of that nature, you don't get to execute that stick the dismount moment the first time on the beam. No. It doesn't work. Yes, you want to do it safely. Yes, you want to have spotters. But you got to miss that beam. You know, have the experience. You you mentioned part of that the sexuality and excitement of getting older, whatever, is not in our age. I think if people in their relationships maintain a sense of adventure or say yes, you know, you don't have to be the best dancer. You don't have to be the best anything, but try it. Right. And play. Like, yeah, play. We have to play as adults, especially we have to play. And and we have to laugh and be surprised and and allow ourselves to I, I understand why life seems like it goes, you know, why it narrows. Because the indignities or the perceived or real indignities of aging, like my body seems to be freaking breaking, or I can't do what I used to, or it's painful to get up in the morning. But it's worth the fight. It's worth the fight to at least at least poke at it and go, okay, well maybe I can't do that, but have I ever tried this or or what else seems fun that I wanted to do but haven't thought of? Well, the system I think teaches us away from play. Yeah. The whole idea that they say be serious, calm down, st- don't do that. Right? They're they're like be you've got to be serious, whatever. And yes, you need to learn some discipline within the framework. But t- almost everything in every part of formal education is about get the play out of the person. Meet these deadlines. Get to this point. Get an ACT score. We need to get this in your head. You need to memorize these dates, right? And when they started to take away playground time and they started to whatever, the, just the general energy you need to between play and work, yeah. I think it's a really important part of the discovery process. When I rehearse with actors as a director, I know they have a process too. And if I tell them what to do and expect it to march around or whatever, it's no fun for them or for me or anybody. But if I let them play in the sandbox and bring something to the party and discover something, mm-hmm. if it's a way they cross, if it's how they say it, if they ask, can you give me something else here? I think I got some more business. Like I love actors who can handle business and it doesn't get in their way. Um, at one time there was an actress I cast as my mom and she loved business. And when she auditioned, uh, First of all, she wasn't old enough to be my mom. She was, you know what I mean? Yeah. I looked at her and I was like, oh, she's only like 10 years older than me. This is not whatever. When she auditioned, everything during the audition, she put on a sweater, she buttoned it up, she folded the sleeves up, she was over, and she was perfect. Like everything was old lady perfect yes. for my mom, right? And I was like, oh, this is a pretty good idea now because she can do a lot of stuff. Well, once we got to the stage, when we got to the to the soundstage, uh, I started adding stuff. Like, like I, instead of having an open doorway to the kitchen, I put a swinging door and I'm like, you go through the door this way and then pick something up. And when the door's coming, you come back through the door this way and then you get the bunt pan and then you go out the door. Like, I want these five lines. I want you to go in and out of that door four times. And she's like, uh, that, I love that. Let's do that, right? And it was great, great moments because the audience would just laugh that the door didn't stop swinging. She didn't push it. You know, oh, wow. she just was in the opening and, uh, and, and, and yet she was like giving you a recipe and doing a thing and carrying the, th- you know what I mean? And then into the oven and then on with the hot pads. And, you know, it was amazing. Isn't it amazing? I know I, actors are, I had the great pleasure of, I studied with Wynne Hanman for, you know, on and off for about four years and he passed away recently. 
but he had a good long run, 97 years. So Wynne Hanman was the artistic director and founded the American Place Theater in New York. And and the American Place Theater was famous for producing plays that no one else would have touched. He was the first person to produce Sam Shepard. He produced uh, writers from a very culturally and uh, racially diverse. He he was he was extraordinary voice for the theater in New York City, and he was also a wonderful teacher. And he would often it was always scene work it was two times a week and and it was a theater and he kind of ran lights there was always lights up lights down in a scene and it was very wonderfully competitive the you know for example john leguizamo was in my class um eric magosian developed uh his first shows with with win and win produced them first at the uh Whichever his first one was, uh, the talk was it talk, was it radio? talk radio or drinking drinking in America or mm, I don't remember which was what, but but, but anyway, yeah, an extraordinary. Um, so there was a very high people really wanted to bring their best work to this to this space, um, and he would give actors. It wasn't even direction; it was suggestion or ways to think about things that was so always anchored to the writing. But what, what it showed me was this extraordinary example of the expanse of actor imagination. And actors will go so far and so deep for you if you, if you, if you give them that invitation and, and make them feel safe. They will think of things for their characters. They will inhabit physicality. They will understand align so deeply because they're willing to, they want to use the instrument of like investing. I want to inhabit this life. I want to be in it. So you giving your actor this, like, this is your world. And as a part of the technical part of your world, without any, without ever pointing out it or saying it, you know, this world so well that you're going to know the timing of this door in your kitchen so that you're executing this recipe and then it's hilarious because we're like, how is it possible that this woman can be cooking and talking and doing this physical thing at the same time? It's it's so great. It's so exciting. And and what is interesting, and again, I, I, I saw The Aerialist on Amazon Prime um, first, I guess, coming off of an interview. Maybe you and Pink were talking on FaceTime yeah. or something. And I was like, wow, this is fascinating. Like, I really want to see this movie, right? I want to, oh, wow. you know, I think you had, there was a mention in it yeah. or something. So I watched it and then, and then I realized that in some ways it was a sequel. And I was like, oh, wow, because it stood alone beautifully. Oh. The writing is great. The direction, the casting. What's really interesting is how much these films become our family, those family members. You end up with a giant family reunion at the end of your life from every time that you've at put a team together mm. for an event, right? Yeah. It's so rewarding. And you have to deal with other family foibles and people's insecurities and how they feel and and all of that. But at the same time, it's the most wonderful kind of a family because you're connected by the moments, right? Yeah. By the memory of making it. And when you make something with your hands, with your heart, whatever it is, everybody gets to raise that child. They mm. all get to point back at that moment, right? Of, of creation, essentially. The, 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 in the aerialist, there's a group of dancers that have worked together for over over a decade called the Fam, and that is based on the 
the eight dancers who were the dancers on Cher's farewell tour, the one that was from 2002 to 2005, are they're named after those characters as well, Bubba and Jamal, and um, and they're all to honor these the people who. Uh, to this day, the relationship that I have with those people is so deep. I, when you tour with someone in, in that world, in the pop world, often the band travels together on their bus, the dancers travel on their bus. You know, it can be broken down in different ways. Management is on a bus. The artist has a separate bus. So these are these beautiful buses that have 12 bunks on them. So in a way, it's extraordinary. It's like a floating hotel room. But there are 12 people living together, literally on top of each other. So your little, your little bunk that's got little TV, and you can plug in your speakers, and you close your curtain. You're still on top of two or between or below two people. And there's still <laughs> people walking by and all the habits that people have, whether whatever it is. The experience of living with people like that for that, those three years is, is unlike any other thing you, you, in time becomes so strange because it's even weirder for the crews, but for the performers, you know, you break down, the artist does a runner, a runner is when this is a little like behind the scenes information on a pop tour. If you ever wonder why you're in the tour and there's the big there's the finale number, and then there's often something else or a playoff with the band or something, and you don't see the artist again. That's because the art artist is in the bus leaving the arena area so that they can get ahead of traffic. It's called a, that's called a runner. But then we're still there, so then there's much more time because you, you and often you eat, you get out of costume, costume has to load up and take care of all that, and the crew then starts deconstructing the stage. But... Um, so then you hang around the venue until the 10,000, 15,000 people have gotten in their cars and left. And then, then you go because there's no point in getting in that line of traffic. And then you go to your next city. So you often arrive five, six, three, four, whatever, seven in the morning. And then you go to your room and you get your luggage if you're lucky enough to, you know, get it then. So then you try to sleep. So the disorientation of that, of your pods travel becomes really strange. And you're the only people who understand how strange you feel to wake up in another city or wake up in a hotel room and try to like run into the wall because you think you're going into the bathroom. It's an incredibly wonderful and deep bound bonding experience with all the, as you said, like, oh my God, I hate you so much right now. Right. Well, it's a biosphere in a way, right? In, in that group being singularly aware of the experience most people think it's super glamorous to be on a bus or to oh touring was it is taxing yeah. and and you have to have you know an untold amount of patience or not but you have to deal with it yes. right it's you're suddenly in a russian sub with you know other people and it's like we're not going up for air for another six months or whatever <laughs> the funny thing about those things is everybody is doing their job those roustabouts that are pushing those road cases, um, they just, they're on the clock and they are, they don't want to be there any later. You know, they don't want to be there till 4 yeah. a.m. They want to be out of there yeah. at 3 a.m. And so when those wheels start moving, they don't care about you or anybody no. else. We all do it for the magic of the moment, for the ticket buyer to be in the seat, to have the experience. Yeah. That is, I think, one of the 
greatest losses at the moment in the pandemic yeah. is the loss of gathering. Yeah. Gathering creates community, create, community creates energy. There's a humanity in experiencing something together. I, and yeah. it, it can't be traded for a Zoom no, family it can't. reunion. I, I, I got to go to Montana this summer where, and there was a Corona safe screening of the aerialist in a theater. And it was it was beautiful and and so it was still fifty percent capacity, but it was an audience in a theater and a large screen saw the movie and i I was so sad because the director writer Ned Farr, who the our d p Alex uh all of the people, but especially the director and writer who edited the film. They still haven't gotten to see it on a screen with people because we the we had the shutdown happened a week before our cast and crew screen. And then we had to make this economic decision of releasing the movie and so no festivals, no. The gymnast and another film I made, a marine story, went to over two hundred and fifty festivals internationally and won forty-eight awards and just had a community experience that was that we are just not having. And um, I hope, as you say, it's, it's irreplaceable. We, I, I vow, have vowed to everyone we'll do it and we'll have a huge dance party afterwards when we get to do it. But it's, just, it's heartbreaking to me that the team and the cast and crew aren't, haven't gotten to see the film. Well, let me take a moment for the listener to encourage them to see The Aerialist on Amazon Prime. They will be introduced to your work and to the cast and to the story of Jane. If they want to do their real work, watch the gymnast first, have a double feature that night. Um, and then I guess the next day they can watch the Marine story. But um, they, it's, it's really, it's actually quite nice, given what you shared with us today, to see your character and you traveling through time by seeing these two movies mm. in close proximity and understanding also it is a narrative and it's not your true life mm -hmm. story, even though you bring yourself to it, um, because I'm sure people get confused by some of that. They do. It's interesting. I mean, mostly I think of it as a compliment because it's they're supernaturalistic. And as I said, I try to strip any sort of filter. It happens largely in a rehearsal for a, a show with dance. So, you know, it's not glamorous. We're, we're sweaty and um, unmade up mostly. People assume it's my story, and I'm like, well, it's not. I, I actually, it's not at all. But, but th I guess, I guess it feels very uh, uh, real. So that's good. I consider that a compliment. No, it is. It's very, very authentic. It's a beautifully told story. There's some great humor in it. It's really an excellent watch. I know I've gone a little over time. There's so many areas. <laughs> you're, you're a, a wonderfully creative person, and you do understand all the discipline of the arts. I have. One thing that we often like to do, and I think you might be able to do this handily. So here's what I like to offer the listeners. I feel like I would have liked to have people tell me when I was younger something I could do right now, some action that I could take creatively, and whether it's uh, in the vein of what you do or something that you learned along the way, uh, we call it the homework assignment or the take home. Uh, but if you could share with us something that people could do to stimulate their creative life or give themselves some confidence in, the, in, their, in their art? Oh, that's such a great big question and wonderful, so important. I think I would encourage people to not 
segment their creative life from the rest of their life. That the idea that, oh, I have to stop doing my job at the store or doing this so I can be creative. I, oh, I've got to, ah, crap, I got to do that. I got to do my homework. I got to clean my room. I got to weed the yard. I got to do whatever. I got to buy gas. Those, and I got to do those things and then I can be creative. I would invite everyone to think of every single waking moment as a creative opportunity and what would be the way that you could imagine doing the thing, the tasks that must be done so that we can live and support each other and our communities in a way that speaks to your own sense of creativity and joy and expression. Because I think those are little keys to opening the little doors that then you step through to, to this bigger understanding of like, oh yeah, everything I do feeds my spirit. My spirit is everything. So it can lead to, boy, I'd like to get up and dance. Boy, uh, maybe I feel like singing. Ooh, somebody said I can't sing. Fuck them. I'm going to sing. Uh, maybe I'll call somebody and talk to them or just, just crack the little things open and then they'll feed themselves. That's, that would be my thought. I think it's great. Well, it's a beautiful invitation. I have to say that the how you do things, meaning if you accept that you live in a creative life, right? That's to me, it's how do we do it? Like, yes, I don't get to have an audience, but I can open a cookbook and how I make that meal for my kids can be done creatively. I think of creativity as an infused part of my life. And it doesn't take away anything if I have to temporarily transfer it to some other part of yes. my life. I'm not on a hiatus as a creative just because I don't have an yeah. audience. That doesn't stop this this conversation to me. It's like a spark plug, yeah. right? It's like I want to. I don't really want to be an aerialist. Yes, but, you do. Because I don't. Really you do. But I do. <laughs> my, right. My my inner sprite is ready to go up that silk. I would invite yeah. both you and Amanda at some point when the world is safe to let me show you how to hang upside down. Oh my God, we, we will do that. We will like, absolutely. I say yes okay. to everything. Okay. No, it's I'm. A I will. Solemn agreement. You know, right? I may wear depends, but I will do it. <laughs> and I salute you for being yourself in as an artist and as a creator moving forward. But I can see why the people that you direct and choreograph uh, adore you so much. I think mm -hmm. you're just an extraordinary person. So thank you for being our guest on behalf of our producer, Amanda Rosenberg, and all of the staff here at Creativity and Captivity. Um, thank you for being our <laughs> yeah, guest. I, it was really I sweet. Appreciate I appreciate it so much. Thank you for putting a light on my project. And, and it was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations that offer a spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under Whizbang producer Amanda Rosenberg, with editing by soundsmith Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Please feel free to reach out with your input or to share a review through social media on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. That's right, it's dot fun, because dot com is not fun. Cheers. <laughs>